The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Uh, good evening again. I'm glad they, they did let me come back here. Our text uh, tonight is going to be from Matthew chapter 27. And um, in this uh, text, we have an account of Judas who, uh, after betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he begins to feel remorse. And upon feeling remorse, he goes to the religious leaders of the day, goes to the church of his day. He admits uh, what he's done wrong, and he's given advice uh, telling him to deal with the problem himself. Take care of it yourself. And that puts Judas on a path to despair. And uh, I think what we need to ask uh, from this text is, what is the role of the church when it comes to people who are feeling remorse, who are going through despair, and, and they need help? And so let's, uh, let's read the text first. Again, it's Matthew 27, and just the first five verses say this. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. Let's ask God that he would now bless the preaching of his word this evening. Our Father in heaven, as we come before you, uh, we are grateful for every blessing that you have given to us in Christ. We thank you that you have turned us from ourselves to a Savior who rescues us, and who gives us hope. As we turn to your word now, Father, uh, we will meditate on your precepts. We will regard your ways. We will delight in your statutes. And we shall not forget your word. May it ever be on our lips. And may by the power of your Holy Spirit this evening, may we once again be changed by it. May it do its work in us. May we be different people than when we came in here this afternoon. When we leave, may we be more like Christ. And may we desire more to serve him. We pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> One of the difficulties of uh, pastoral ministry is overcoming the stigmas uh, that you kind of face in society uh, that, that are regarded to that office. When I was a kid, um, I watched the show The Simpsons. And there's a character on The Simpsons uh, whose name is Ned Flanders. And Flanders was The Simpsons' next-door neighbor, if you haven't seen the show. And um, he was highly religious, and he followed the Bible as closely as possible. Um, he was portrayed in the show as just a giant pushover, right? Ned, Ned Flanders was was a joke, and um, 
And throughout uh, the years watching that show, every time I would think of a pastor, I would think of Ned Flanders. I, I thought pastors were, you know, they're Ned Flanders. And then when I turned 40 and my eyesight went and I had to get glasses and I looked in the mirror and realized I'm Ned Flanders now, you know, it made a lot more sense. But um, when I became a Christian, I, I began to see that that's just actually not true. Pastors aren't Ned Flanders. Christians aren't like Ned Flanders. And so I really began to be interested in uh, how, how the society views the church. Um, not, not in order necessarily to reach the society through some kind of pragmatic method, um, but just general curiosity about what, is, what do they think about us? Because I knew what I thought about the church when I was unconverted. So what do they think about us? And um, there was two things that I found doing actually quite a bit of reading over the years. Um, and, and the first thing is that generally... People who are well-to-do, people who are doing good financially, uh, they have friends, you know, their lives are together in the general sense, they view the church as a joke. Right? We're a joke. We've, uh, I, had a, I had a friend uh, named Kent for many years who uh, just used to mock Christianity. He had a bumper sticker on his truck that said, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. Um, he, he couldn't stand Christians. He thought it was uh, the greatest joke ever. And uh, his life was well together. You know, he was a CPA, made lots of money, did whatever he wanted. But I've also found that there are other people, um, people who are not doing well, people who are suffering. Uh, maybe they're in some form of poverty. Their family life isn't going well. They look at the church very differently. Uh, when they look at the church, what they see um, they see a place that they're they're not allowed to go. Right? Those, that's where the the good people go. There's a guy uh, by the name of William Ing. He was an American playwright who lived from 1913 to 1973. And um, William Ing produced a number of uh, of novels and plays, and mainly it was his plays that he was famous for, but uh, he wrote he wrote several novels that were well-received, and they were all written uh, to depict the area, or the rather the time of the Great Depression in the area around uh, the Midwest, Kansas, in that area. And in his books, as I've read his books over the years, um, there are two themes that William Ng is, is always pushing. Well, two themes that I see as I read his novels. Um, the first one is he's wrestling with the sexual revolution, which was a very big deal at, at his time. And so he's, he's commenting on that, and, and his novels are depicting the change in people's thinking regarding sexuality and, and, and what's happening in the world at that period of time. The other one is uh, Ng's view of the church. Uh, he, he, had, he had quite an interesting view of the church. In uh, 1971, he wrote a novel that I do not recommend. Okay, it's not you don't want to buy it. Um, it, it the title is "My Son Is a Splendid Driver," and it, it's set in the the late 1920s to the 1930s, and it's about a family living in Kansas, uh, the Hanson family. 
the wife in the story is really struggling. Uh, and she's really struggling because her husband, who's a salesman, uh, who, who leaves for long periods of time, uh, had gone out and had been visiting prostitutes and contracted an STD, brought it home and gave it to her. And it was a form of herpes that broke out on her face and took years for her to treat. And she was so ashamed. Uh, and again, this is getting into the sexual revolution stuff he's writing about, the change in thinking about that sort of thing uh, that occurred in the 60s and 70s. But she is so ashamed uh, of what she has that she, she won't even leave the house anymore. And one morning in the novel, she's sitting on her front porch and she sees her neighbors going to Catholic Mass. And this is what it says. And the perspective here is one of her sons is telling the story. Um, and so he says this. Every morning on the front porch, we would see Mrs. Holt leave her house and start for the Catholic Church on her way to Mass. She doesn't miss a day, Mother observed. There was a dedication about the woman that always gave us pause. I wish I had a God to pray to now. Mother sometimes said, but I don't seem able to find him. Mother had stopped going to church. Church, she says, isn't the place to go with your troubles. Church is just the place to go when you're feeling good and you have a new hat to wear. There was a little bitterness in what she said, a little self-pity. There was also truth. Our minister would have been the last person in the world she could have talked to, to have lifted the curse she felt upon her and saved her from feeling damned. She would have embarrassed the man into speechlessness had she gone to him with her story. He would have been unable to look at her or my father without coloring. Most of our morality, I was beginning to think, was based on a refusal to deal with sin. Our entire Religious heritage, it seemed to me, was one of refusal to deal with sin. C.S. Lewis once famously said that in reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. The reason why I would even read Ing's volumes is because it gives me insight again into how the world views the church. Um, in, in Ing's novel, as you read it, you can feel the despair of a man who has no hope. It, you, it's, it's bleeding off the page. It's being poured into the reader. And, and you, can, you, can, you can hear the voice of a man who looks at the church and sees that the church is just the place that you go to when you're feeling good and you just want to show off your new hat. But it's not a place where you go to if you're hurting. It's a place that you avoid at all costs, bringing up your troubles. In 1973, the playwright William Ng pulled his Mercedes-Benz into his garage, closed the door, and kept the engine running. And his sister found him soon afterward dead. And I think how the world views us and how the world views our response to hurting people is extremely important. And I think that's what 
Matthew 27, 1 through 5 is about. It's telling us, here's the wrong way. Here's the wrong way to deal with despairing people. Because Jesus came to save not the righteous, but sinners, we have to be a people and we have to be a place that directs hurting, despairing people away from themselves and to the Savior Jesus, who can provide a path of hope, who can, who can say to the sinner, it's okay that you're a sinner, God knows. But God can rescue you from your sin. And so our text is familiar to all of us. I mean, we, we know the story of Judas. Um, Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas feels bad about what he did. Judas goes out and hangs himself. What I don't want you to miss here is how vitally important this is for understanding how we as churches deal with hurting people. And so I have three points from the text tonight. Here's, I at least have an outline tonight. Number one, Judas's remorse. Number two, the religious response. And number three, the course of despair. Now, before we get to that, let's just notice the setting. Okay, We're, we're in verses one through two here. Uh, it says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Now this this isn't, uh, or rather it shouldn't be all that shocking to anyone, especially the disciples. Um, shouldn't be shocking to Judas. Jesus has already told them back in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. So Jesus, now you can picture the scene in your mind. He is bound. He is led away. He's going to be delivered to Pilate. And they're going to condemn Jesus to death. Right? You, you, you should think of this in your mind as fulfilling uh, what happens in Genesis when Isaac is bound. Right? He's brought up on the mountain. He's placed on the altar. Uh, the wood's put underneath him. Uh, Jesus now is the Lamb of God. He is bound. He's led away as a sheep to the slaughter. And yet we know uh, in this situation, no one's going to cry out and stay the hand of God. God's going to kill his only son to pay the price for our sins so that we would not have to despair. Verse 3 goes on. Then Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned. Now, I think it's it's important to see the snowball effect of sin here in Judas's life. Um, I'm speculating, uh, perhaps, but I think Judas, Judas thought Jesus would just get scourged, right? He'd get whipped a little bit for his heresy. Uh, he'd maybe get a little beat up and mocked. I don't think Judas had any idea that Jesus would be condemned to death. And just the reason I say is because it says, then Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he'd been condemned. And, and it's, a, it's a reminder to us all, 
Sometimes we look at people who have just dug the hole so deep, and there's a callousness in us that goes, yeah, they're, they're, they're just stupid. They, they kept going in sin. They got their, now they got exactly what they deserve in their life, and, and now they want us to pity them. You know, we can think that way uh, about people who have really gotten into a difficult situation. But sin has a way of doing that. Right? Sin has a way of the consequences are always far worse than we ever imagined they would be. Right? I think of Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, did they really know that, that when they ate that piece of fruit, that just a few years later the consequences of that would be, you know, Cain murdering Abel, Cain starting this whole line of, of murderous villains in his life, and, and, and that line would lead to the whole world being so full of sin that in the line of Seth, righteous Seth, there ends up only being one guy who's actually righteous, Noah, and God has to just kill everyone. I mean, I don't think they ever imagined the snowball effect that sin would have. So even, even when we think we've gotten away with sin, uh, the damage that's incurred to ourselves and to others is always far more than we ever imagined. And Judas sees this. Judas sees things have gone poorly. This is not the way I wanted them to go. And I didn't foresee these consequences. So it says, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. There are three things I want to notice about the remorse of Judas. Okay? The first one is this. Judas really did feel bad about what happened. Um, I know he's the son of perdition, and, and, and I understand God's providence. But I also think that, um, well, I don't think. I know, given the right condition, I'm Judas. right? Given the right situation, you're Judas. It's only by the grace of God that we're not Judas. In fact, every, every time that we sin against the Lord, we are betraying innocent blood. We're betraying the blood of Christ that has redeemed us from our sins. And, and so it's real remorse. Now, now uh, Matthew does something here. He uses a word uh, that, that we can't associate with repentance. Uh, he, he's using a different word here. In fact, um, the Greek word metamelomai uh, is to feel uh, regret, to feel remorse, to feel bad about something that you've done, but it doesn't correspond to the, the word that he uses later for repentance, metanoia, the, the idea of actually turning away from sin to Christ. What we see in Judas is what, what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 7.10 as worldly sorrow. He says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. We, we know what kind of sorrow Judas had because of what it produced. Right? It produces death. He goes out and he hangs himself. Now, Judas didn't turn from his sin. right? We, we all understand that. Um, but he did feel deep remorse over what he did. And I think that's important because very often God will send people into our midst who feel deep remorse over sin like Judas. 
And, and the question isn't, is it real repentance or not? The question is, what are we going to do with the situation God's given us? Where will we point this person? Okay, the second thing is that, you see, he returned the 30 pieces of silver. Uh, this, this is important because Judas is now making attempts to, to right the wrongs that he's committed. And what we don't want to do is turn repentance just into doing things to make it right. This is like, our, this is our biggest danger. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church and their whole idea of penance, that's where it comes from. You sin, now you've got to make it right. You know, take the 30 pieces of silver back. Uh, not that this is bad, but it's not going to accomplish anything. What it, what it could do is lighten the load of guilt, lighten the feeling of remorse that he's having, but this isn't repentance. This isn't turning away from sin to Christ. Um, third, he makes a confession. You notice what he says there. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He knows that he's done wrong. He, he knows that he's messed up. He knows that he's guilty. And all this combines to him not knowing what to do with this. And so uh, if we put it in our modern day parlance, he, he would be going to his pastor and saying, what do I do with this? I've betrayed innocent blood. What do I need to do? Point me in the right direction. And again, I, I recognize this is not the sorrow, according to the will of God, that produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. It is not that kind of sorrow. It is the sorrow of the world that produces death. But again, I, I just want you to consider, here's a guy who is messed up. I mean, this is as bad of a mess up as you can have. And, and, and he needs direction. He's coming to his religious leaders and he's saying, tell me what to do with this. And he needs directions to a path of life and forgiveness. He needs, he needs directions to hope. And um, the question is, what, what will you say to such a man? Right? What, what do we say to such a person? A man or a woman who comes, who has sinned greatly, and, and comes to us and says, what do I do? What do I do? All right. You know, one of the things that I, I fear about the church at times is that as, as we grow in maturity and as we, uh, as we learn more about sound doctrine and the Lord does this amazing work of sanctification in our lives, that we run this risk of becoming too sensitive to the real evil in the world. Right? The longer we're in the faith, this is just the reality of sanctification. Um, the less, uh, rather, the more offended we are by sin, right? Sin, sin irks us more and more. But that can turn, that can turn into a sanitized form of Christianity, uh, where people come to us with real problems, and, and we don't want to touch them because they've gotten themselves too icky. They're, they're too disgusting at this point for us. And so, is the church? It's a real question we have to ask. Is the church in danger of becoming the place that you just go to when you're feeling good and you have a new hat to wear? You see how many people we in immediately exclude uh, from the gathering of the church. What we're going to learn in this text is what we 
don't say to people. Right? And this includes not just an unbelieving Judas, but even Christians who have fallen into grievous sin. It is possible to be a Christian and to fall into grievous sin. I think one of the most controversial verses, I thought about preaching on this, um, but it's, it's in the book of Hebrews when we find out the Bible says that Lot is a righteous man. I mean, that, that almost makes me mad that Lot's a righteous man. How did Lot get into the righteous man category? And again, it's taking us back to the gospel that is so terribly offensive that God can take the worst. We know what Lot did. God can take the worst men and he can make them righteous by faith alone. And that's still offensive. And it's still difficult for every one of us sitting in here uh, to read that passage and go, yeah, Lot the righteous man. Notice how the religious respond here in verse 4. But they said, uh, latter half of verse 4 here, but they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. Um, you hear it from Brian a lot on Law and Gospel. Uh, it's, it's just the theme of Reformed theology. That is one of the, the most fascinating responses in the Bible because it so perfectly illustrates why it is important to distinguish between Law and Gospel. I mean, think about what he says there. Um, and and it's, it's so amazing, too, because I find this to be the message of so much of modern evangelicalism today. What is that to us? See to that yourself. You know, come on in on Sunday. This is this is what you know a lot of churches are saying now. And and you come on in and we'll tell you how to be a better person. We'll tell you how to how to have these steps for a better marriage. Right? Oh, you're you're struggling with raising your kids. That's great. Next week, we got a whole series on how to be a better parent. You're, you're not doing well in your job. That's fine. We're going to do a whole series now on, on how you can be the best employee you can be. Struggling with retirement? We're going to tell you how to be a godly retiree. Um, from one end to the other, you know, we don't dare say, you know, what is that to us? Rather, what we do, we say, we'll be the gurus to tell you how you can figure this out for yourself. We're just one step above the Pharisees here and much of modern evangelicalism. But there are limits to that message. right? That, that message being proclaimed today has the limit of, first of all, you better not be too bad. right? Um, this is something we have to all watch out for. What we do and how we do and how we act when the real sinner comes in among us. Um, I, I always get a little embarrassed when I tell this story, but I think it illustrates it well. When I was first converted, uh, I didn't know you weren't supposed to cuss in church. And so I, I came to church for several weeks and conversing with men in the back, you know, and like trying to fit in and I'm dropping the F-bomb and they're, Eyes are getting humongous, and I just didn't know. I, I didn't know that's that's just not what you do in church. I, I'd been ingrained in that that lifestyle and that language for so long. I thought that was just an old relic of the past. And um, 
And it caused a lot of people to kind of push away, like, man, we can't have this guy in the booze. Um, God takes time to sanctify us. And sometimes the people who come in our doors are the people who are desperate for help. And they just don't even know yet. They don't. They, and here's the reality. We've all heard it. We know what sin is. We've all done it. We violated each and every commandment ourselves in, in either heart or mind or action. And we should not get into this state where we think our lives are so sanitized that we can't even be exposed to any person who's not looking just like us. The modern church doesn't want that. Come in, you better have it most of all together. Right? You better have most of your life going and smooth. Secondly, the modern church doesn't actually want to deal with people's problems. You could, you could come to church and, and we'll tell you how to do things, um, but you better not have any serious problems that are going to require our time. I was just talking to Pastor Doug about the counseling ministry, and um, he was telling me how many churches send people here. Uh, and I have the, the exact same experience. Uh, churches call me and say, hey, we've got a problem with this couple or this person. We're just not equipped to handle this. You, you think you could fit them into your schedule. And I'm always amazed. I don't know what you guys do, you know, other than um, give your sermons on how to make your life better. Uh, but why don't you take care of your own sheep? And the reality is it's a total mindset. of Yeah, you know, Pastor Davis likes the messy people. Um, we, we don't want them here. Our church is too nice. We'll, we'll send them over that direction. Finally, don't expect the modern church to actually do anything to help you. Um, I think especially in the issues of grief. Um, my wife's father passed away this spring, and uh, I was so appalled at the chaplain who did his funeral. Um, because it just turned the whole funeral into a big joke, you know. And, and I've seen this so often in funerals where you have a minister who gets up and there's hurting people there who have serious questions now about eternity. And they get up and they tell jokes because they don't want to deal with anybody's grief. You, you just got to move on. You got to get over it and, and just put one foot, foot in front of the other and keep going through life. In the end, the message has become, see to that yourself. Take care of your problems yourself. The church isn't involved in any of that. And this is what, is what William Ng thought. William Ng saw this in the church all these years ago, and it's still a danger for us today. Uh, Spurgeon comments on this passage, and he says, The chief priests and elders had no more pity for Judas than they had for Jesus. No remorse troubled them. They had secured the Savior, and they cared nothing for any of the consequences of their actions. As for the traitor, he had made his bargain, and he must abide by it. The men are they are cold-hearted. They don't care about the desperate plight of others. It, it, it doesn't mean anything to them because they have nothing to say to people who have real problems. All they have is self-help. Further. The real root of the problem was they were too busy trying to get rid of Jesus to help someone in need. In the same way, what can happen to us 
is that we can become, Christians can become too busy trying to get rid of Jesus through the promotion of self-help, the promotion of here's a conference on how to do this and be a better that, to lend any time to people who are desperate. Remember this verse. What is that to us? See to that yourself. Remember that because that is the cry of kicking Jesus out of the church and telling people you've got to fix your own problems. They turn a man in despair back on himself. See to it yourself. There's there's an old story in 1835. There's this guy who uh, goes in and he visits a doctor and it's in Florence, Italy. And he was suffering from anxiety. Uh, He wasn't sleeping. He was depressed. He wouldn't talk to his friends. He wasn't eating. And um, the doctor looks him over says, man, you're in prime physical condition. There is nothing physically wrong about you. And and so concluding this, the physician says, uh, basically, you know, the problem is you you just you need to go out and have a good time. And um, and he says, "Uh, here's my recommendation. There's a circus in town, and its star performer is a guy by the name of Grimaldi. He's a clown. And and night after night, he's performing at this circus, and he's making everybody laugh, and they're having a great time, and people are just rolling out of their seats laughing, and and he'll cure your sadness. He'll make you better. Just go see this guy. And the story becomes famous because the man replies and says, No, he can't help me. See, I am Grimaldi. I am the clan. And again, the idea is, what, what did he try to do? He tried to turn a man back on himself. We can't help ourselves. People can't help themselves. And that's the point. The point of the church is never that we would turn people back in on themselves. It's that our fingers are always pointing them to the Savior, pointing them to Jesus, where there is actual and real hope. But when we point the finger back at them, we drive them to the path of despair. And that's the exact path that Judas was on. Jesus, you remember, comes to save the worst. He comes to save prostitutes. Uh, He comes to save the tax collectors, he comes to save the Gentiles, he comes to save the Samaritans, he comes to save demon-possessed people, he comes to save uh, the the uh, religious elite like Paul. Those are the kind of people that Jesus comes to save. And the church is never tasked with the message of saying, well, wait a second, you're actually more disgusting than we can handle. You're not going to hack it here. What is that to us, right? What are those problems to us? See to that yourself. You need to get yourself cleaned up a little more before you start coming around here. Our task is to take guilty, wounded, despairing people, just like me and you, and turn them to Jesus, to to point them at Christ. Luther said, The gospel or the faith is a doctrine or word of God that does not require our works. It does not command us to do anything. 
On the contrary, it bids us merely to accept the offered grace of forgiveness of our sins and eternal life and let it be given to us. He says it means that we do nothing, only receive and allow ourselves to be given what has been granted to us and handed to us in the Word. That, that's the message that we have for people. Forget about fixing it up. You're not fixing anything. You need to go to Jesus who will fix it for you. And simply all you do is receive what God freely offers. This is, this is why we preach Christ and not ourselves. Right? This, is, this is why we turn people to Jesus. It's why we turn them away from themselves. This is what repentance is. Repentance is turning away from yourself, away from your works, away from your righteousness, and looking only to the righteousness of Jesus Christ as the only basis of your relationship with God. And when we do that, when we do that, we're set on the path of hope. Right? There's great hope in the gospel. But the consequences of the church's failure to reach out with the gospel to the lost and hurting is terrible. When we put people on a path directing them at themselves, it is a deadly path of despair that we put them on. I, I preached this sermon about a month and a half ago. We had a family visiting us from out of town, um, and I preached this sermon. And afterwards, uh, I didn't speak to them. They came and spoke to my co-elder. And they said, uh, yeah, uh, we raised our children in a very legalistic church. And all they've heard their whole lives was the law. They got hammered with the law. Fix yourself. Do better. We really, really messed up in how we raised our kids. And uh, my co-elder comforted them and said, yeah, well, you know, you know Go in with the gospel and, and really help them, and, and this will be good. And they were on vacation from out of town. And um, so sadly, four days later, uh, one of their sons committed suicide. Uh, he had been put on that path of despair for his whole life. And while his parents were out of town, he took his own life. Um, there are real consequences to what we say. To people. Uh, and, and it's etched in my mind forever the reality of how important that verse is. What is that to us? See to that yourself. Notice the course of despair here in verse 5. He threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Judas is told, you got to handle this yourself. And Judas does just that. He takes his silver. He goes to the, the temple. He's not at the temple here when he's talking to him. He has to actually make a trek and go to the temple. Uh, and he walks in there and he throws it in the holy place before the curtain of the Holy of Holies, the temple sanctuary. The silver is blood money. It burns in his hands. It burns in his hands with the the hell fire of searing guilt and shame. And it drives him to throw that money. What, what once was a prize for him now becomes abhorrent. He doesn't even want to touch it. He doesn't even want to be near it. 
he takes matters into his own hands. He casts any reminder of his heinous crime away from him. We would say Judas cleaned up his act. Judas got his stuff together. He did what he was supposed to do. And, And so often, this is what we think. We think repentance is all about us, what we do. It's about what we do to get back right with God and do the right thing. I'm going to stop getting angry, and that's my repentance. I'm going to stop you know, getting depressed. I'm going to stop looking with lust. I'm going to stop this guilty thing that I'm doing or this bad habit that I'm doing. Uh, and if I set myself to it and I really stop doing that sin, that's repentance. Right? There are lots of morally, I should say outwardly moral people who had their lives together who are in hell today. Because true and godly repentance, real repentance, is not so much about what you do, but about the person you're looking to. If you're looking to yourself to make things right, That's not repentance. If you're looking to Jesus alone and he's the only one who can make it right, that's repentance. Has nothing to do with what you do or you don't do. The fruit of true and godly repentance is obedience, but that's that's not repentance. That's the fruit of repentance. And the question for all of us is, are we looking to ourselves Or are we looking to Jesus? And it's so easy to fall into this, isn't it? Like you you, you mess up in that thing you mess up on. You say, I'm going to make my life right. I'm going to get it together. I'm going to read eight chapters out of the Bible this morning. I'm going to pray for 40 minutes this morning and tonight. And I'm going to do all of these things so that God will love me again for that sin that I committed. It's no shock that the Roman Catholic Church fell into penance. You know, I know it has to do with how they translated the, the, the word metanoia into the Latin and all that, but, but this is just what we do, right? I messed up. I feel guilty. I'm going to fix it. And this is what Judas does. Turning to works of the law in order to get right with God is the path of despair. If you're not first turned to Jesus, if you're not first looking at him, the law is of no value to your life. It cannot, it cannot put you on a path to righteousness. It can't get you closer to being righteous. The law only becomes our friend when faith unites us to Christ. And we find in him complete forgiveness of all of our sins. The law says, see to it yourself. And that only ever leads to despair or self-righteousness. It's the only two paths that it can ever take. The law said, Cursed is the man who accepts a bride to kill an innocent person. Deuteronomy 27.55 Judas knows this. Cursed is that man. The religious leaders won't help him. And according to him, you know, Numbers 35 The guilty party must pay for his crime by his own death. Judas knows this. So he went away and hanged himself. That is the path, that is the fruit of see to it yourself. 
Daniel Doriani says the lesson is vital. Judas feels terrible, but because he does not take his sin to the Lord, he is forced to take it upon himself. He says it is a tragic, extreme case of man-made religion, a desperate effort to save oneself, yet it is an extension of the common tendency in godless religions to do something to make atonement for sin. He says, sadly, individual Christians can fall into the same mentality. Worse, theological concepts of penance can promote the same denial of the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. Judas is advised to atone for his sins through his own actions. He goes out and he does just that. And Judas completely fails to atone for his actions. The blood of a sinner can't atone for sin. It can't make sin right. It only makes things worse. There is only one man who can take away our sins. There's only one man who can save us. There is only one man who can take the desperate, despairing sinner like Judas, like every one of us, and put us not just on a path to hope, but a path to life. There's a a good picture of this in uh, Shakespeare's play with uh, Lady Macbeth when she's washing her hands after uh, after her and her husband killed Duncan, the King of Scotland. And she, uh, on the night of the murder, she gets blood on her hands. And um, in her imagination, every time she looks down at her hands, she sees that blood, and, and she can't get it off. And every time she looks at those hands and sees that imaginary blood, she also smells it. And she says in the play, um, what? Will these hands never be clean? Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And the picture is so clear to us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Church is not for those who are feeling good and here to show off their new hat. It's not what the church has ever been for. The the church is for guilty, rotten, horrible sinners so that they may be turned from self and despair to see the glorious truth of the Savior who takes all of that away and makes us whole again. So we can never forget why we're here. People are going to come into these doors and they're going to be desperate and they're going to be hurting and they're going to be in in need of something better than see to it yourselves. And so we can't forget that our task is always to point people to Christ. As redundant as that gets, as it's over and over again, and every week you're hearing about Jesus and the cross and his sacrifice for you, and and maybe there's a tendency to say, let's mix this up a little bit. That's the only message we have. That's the only message that matters. And it's the only message that saves. And we need to not just proclaim it to others, but we need to hear it ourselves. Let's, uh, Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, We're grateful again that you have given to us such wonderful hope in Christ. Lord, 
May we not hear as the devil cries to us, see to that yourself. May we not hear it as our self-righteousness, that little theologian of glory says to us, you've got to fix this yourself. May our ears be deaf to that message. And may our hearts and minds always be open to the message that we can turn to Jesus and that Jesus calls to us and says, come, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May that be our lives. May that be our message. May that be the habit that we get ourselves into every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.